kindly asked me to say a few words about the Amaeus correspondence courses that are on the book table. You can hang me while I'm talking, that's all right. My wife has wanted this to happen to me for a very long time. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I spent four years at the Mayor and 11 years at Moody Bible Institute in, that's a total of 15 years altogether so far in correspondent home study education, but I am convinced that there is not a better way, first of all, to reach men and women for Christ, and then to get them involved in building themselves up in their most holy faith, than by using home study material along with the Word of God. The reason is, of course, that people who use correspondence courses not only have to read the Bible and study the text material, they have to think it through because they have to make certain written responses to the material that they've been studying. And then they have a real live instructor at the other end who can take an interest in them and in their problems, in their Bible questions. And over the years I know of hundreds, thousands of people who have come to know Jesus Christ, firstly as Savior, by studying correspondence courses, and multitudes more who have taken the first real step in the Christian faith. And so I recommend these courses to you. I have one up here on the Messianic Psalms by our brother Ernie Tatham, one on uh, Paul's prison epistles by William MacDonald, one on the tabernacle by my dear friend Dr. Stephen Olford, and one on personal evangelism by A.P. Gibbs. This course on personal evangelism, by the way, with each lesson, you memorize eight salvation verses. So that by the time you finish that course, if you've been conscientious, you've learned nearly a hundred gospel texts to use in witnessing to other people about the Lord Jesus Christ. The courses, of course, are quite higher than books because you have to help pay for the tuition that is given to you. So I recommend them to you. Shockley is one of our distributors for the Amaris courses in the southern part of the United States. I've got a very dry subject this evening. I'm going to talk to you about an old box of bones. And our first reference is in Genesis chapter 50. Verse 24. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. Exodus chapter 13. Verse 18. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up honest out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, 
For he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and he shall carry up my bones away and with you. Book of Joshua. Last chapter of the book of Joshua. Verse 32. And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem, in a parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver, and it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. And one other reference in the epistle of Paul, of Paul as our brother always so beautifully puts it, the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 11. By faith, verse 22, by faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Shall we pray? O Lord, we pray this evening, like Samuel of old, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Speak just now some message to meet my needs, which thou only dost know. Speak now through thy holy word, and make me see some wonderful truth thou hast to show to me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Rather interesting, isn't it, that the book of Genesis begins with God, and it ends with a coffin in Egypt. It begins with life, and it ends with death. It begins with the creation of a universe, and it ends with the bones of a man. It's interesting, too, that another book of the Bible ends on the same note with the bones of Joseph. The book of Joshua rings with the shouts of Israel as they go from victory unto victory, then with a reference to Joseph's bones. God is very interested, you know, in people's bones. I took a concordance one time to see how many times God made reference to the bones of people, and there are about a hundred different occasions in the Bible when God refers to bones. Bones have been interesting modern scientists, too, for some time. You know, if you found an old bone in a graveyard and took it to a skilled anthropologist, he would put it on a few scales in his laboratory and give it one or two tests, and he'd be able to tell you the age and the weight and the sex and the rate and the height and the former state of health of the person to whom that bone once belonged. For bones... You see, even to a scientist in his laboratory, have a story to tell. And so we're not surprised that God is interested in people's bones, and particularly in the bones of Joseph. It's really an amazing fact, when you stop to think of it, that in about 149 different ways, Joseph is like Jesus. He's one of the most perfect, of the Lord Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. 
It is impossible for us to touch the life of Joseph at any point without being reminded in some way or other of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is probably the most Christ-like man in the Old Testament. And yet when in Hebrews chapter 11 the Holy Spirit comes to survey the life and the story of this outstanding Old Testament personality, in order to write down for all eternity some present statement concerning this great servant of God. It's remarkable, to say the least, that the Holy Spirit passes over all those many amazing, wonderful things that could have been said about Joseph and makes reference, if you please, to the fact that when Joseph died, he gave commandments concerning his bones. Why we think of the story of Joseph and everywhere we look at the man, he reminds us of the Lord Jesus. We think of his birth. The father's well-beloved son. We think of his boyhood, how he grew up in that home. And how the father gave him the place of preeminence and exaltation amongst his brethren. How his brethren hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And how he came to his own and his own receded not. How he was sent one day from the presence of the father to find, to seek, and to find his lost brethren. How they resented him. They said, behold, this dreamer cometh. We'll kill him. And then we'll see what will happen to his prophecy. How he was rejected of his brethren and handed over to the Gentiles. And how he was rejected by the Gentiles and falsely accused and suffered for sins not his own. And how he was cast out and rejected by men. How he was raised up by God. And how God through the operation of his mighty sovereign will in the life of this man worked behind the scenes so that Joseph was raised and exalted to the right hand of the majesty of the Pharaoh. And was given a name which was above every name, so that the name of Zaphnath, Pioneer, every knee should bow. And that every tongue should confess that Zaphnath, Pioneer, was Lord to the glory of the Pharaoh. How during the time of his rejection by his brethren, according to the flesh, God gave to him a Gentile bride, took her out of obscurity, and linked her to yon glorious man who occupied the place next to the throne, and blotted out all her past, and tells us only her name, how she was lifted up to share that place of exaltation with John's glorious one. Then how in the fullness of time he began to deal with the brethren who had rejected him, the children of Israel. And how he dealt with them one by one 
severally and collectively until they began to say, as the conviction worked into their conscience, we are thoroughly guilty concerning our brother. And then how in his government he took them and gave them the honest place in the land of Egypt. Then went on and dealt with the Gentile nations until we are reminded that all nations came. All nations came to Joseph. And yet the Holy Spirit in surveying the story of this man picks up this one amazing incident that when he died he made reference to the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandments concerning his bones. Now there are three Old Testament references to the bones of Joseph and his New Testament commentary. The first time we meet the bones of Joseph, they're saying, listen, God will bring you up. The next time we meet the bones of Joseph, they have another message. They're saying, listen, God will bring you through. The last time in the Old Testament that you meet the bones of Joseph, they're saying, God will surely bring you in. They'll bring you in. He's going to bring you out. He's going to bring you through. And he's going to bring you in. That's the message of the bones of Joseph. I want you to look at this old man for a moment, will you? He's 110 years of age. He's on his deathbed in the land of Egypt. He occupies a position of absolute power under the Pharaoh in the greatest empire of his day. In the distance, not far from his chamber, flows the river Nile, the deep, wide, mighty, mysterious Nile, the longest river on earth, although even the Egyptians did not know the secret of its source. On the skyline, perhaps, from his bedroom, he can see the pyramids of the pharaohs. So great is the antiquity of that land that the great pyramid of Egypt has already been there over a thousand years. And Joseph has rose, risen to a position of almost supreme power in this most historic land, the land of Egypt. He's surrounded by every luxury that wealth can command. The pleasures of Egypt, why, they've all been offered to him. And the pleasures of Egypt have been poured with prodigal abundance into his hands. And supreme power and authority has rested upon his shoulders for many years. And he looks every inch a case. But he's now 110 years of age. And since his middle teens, mark you, he has been in a position of almost supreme power in Egypt. 
Now at the age of 110, this old man is going to die. And he gathers his brethren around his deathbed. And they're waiting for the end. And there he lies in state in the positions of Egypt, standing in the corridors, waiting for the word that the great man has passed into the grave beyond. The brothers standing around his bed, looking at one another and wondering what this old man is going to say. And suddenly he rises upon his, his elbow and his voice strengthens and he raises himself up upon his pillows and he's going to make his last command. He's going to give to these brothers of his, his last will and testament. He says, Ruben, come here. Benjamin. Judah. Ithaca. Dan. Naphtali. Esther, come around my bed. I'm going to give you boys my last will and testament. And I suppose they must have had great anticipation. I expect they were thinking it would go something like this. I bequeath to Judah my vast holdings on the Nile, and to Benjamin my jewelry worth the ransom of a dozen kings. And I bequeath to Ephraim my robes of state, as a permanent reminder to my son of the greatness and the dignity that his father bore in the land of Egypt. And to Manasseh, I leave my stables together with my chariots and my livery. But you know, his will didn't go like that. Not a bit of it. Why soon there would arise in Egypt a king that knew not Joseph. And then who should these things be? He had something far more valuable than that. He's going to leave them, if you please, his bones. I don't know how pleased you'd be if uh, one of your wealthy relatives were to die and you were to go along to the beating of the quill. And then the lawyer opened the will in your presence and he began to read it out that he was a sound mind and so on. He left you his dead body. I did hear about a fellow once who said in his will, being of sound mind, I spent all my money. And I leave you my funeral expenses. <laughs> but all Joseph had to leave his brothers was his both. And mind you, he wasn't paying them back in their own coins. For the spiteful, mean, underhanded, nasty, despicable way they treated her. Oh, no. He forgiven them all that many years ago. His assessment of all that kind of behavior was this. 
As for you, you meant it unto ill, but God meant it unto good. He'd forgiven them all that. But he left them his bones because this was the most precious thing, that he could bequeath to these brothers of his, whether they appreciated it or not. And in a time to come, there was going to be a day in the experience of the descendants of these boys gathered around the bed of their brother when his bones were going to be the most precious, precious thing that they had in their midst. I die, he said, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he swear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from heaven. Now, these last words of Joseph are of prime importance because they cast a flood of light, you see, upon the principles which have guided and sustained this man for nearly a hundred years. And we observe hidden in this last statement of Joseph three things. We observe, first of all, the faith that sustained him. We are told by the Holy Spirit in Hebrews chapter 11 that it was by faith that Joseph, when he lay a-dying, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandments concerning his bones. You see, he's going to die in faith. That's a great way to die. I remember my father telling me of standing beside the deathbed of his father. And as my grandfather reached the waters of Jordan, he looked up into the face of his son and he said, Len, he said, there's nothing to die. It's the living that matters. If you live right, you'll die right. Spurgeon used to say of death that death is the last enemy. And then in a typical Spurgeon way, he added, leave him to last. I hear this old man has now come into a death struggle with the last enemy. And he lets drop in his dying words the faith, the principle that has guided him, the faith that has sustained him ever since he was a teenager. This man had lived for God at home and abroad. He had lived for God in the midst of persecution and peril, in the midst of temptation and tribulation, testing and trial. He had lived for God, and he had remained true to the living God for nearly a century. And God in his grace had kept this man, think of it, for a hundred years 
He had kept this man from all the tricks and all the seductiveness and all the sensuality of the God of hell. And have you ever stopped to think that God was so pleased with the way that this young man, as a teenager, determined how he was going to live his life and how he had kept faith with God for nearly a century. But then God came to write the first book of our Bible. He devoted 25% of the book of Genesis to telling us the story of this man. And Joseph is not even in the messianic line. That's the divine endorsement of God upon the life of Joseph. Let all the temptations of Egypt and all its false standards and all its materialism and all its false teaching, God had kept in truth. When he was surrounded as he was on every hand by all the suggestiveness and all the scholarship of Egypt's renowned world-famous university, and in his daily business, Joseph had to rub shoulders with the keenest intellectuals in the land of Egypt. God kept him through. Amid all the pomp and all the pageantry and all the power of high position, and we know that it's true that what Lord Acton said, that all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, yet not just in a position of authority far greater than that of the President of the United States, comparatively speaking, and with every temptation, to compromise and to enter into bribery and corruption. Joseph maintained his integrity and his character and his testimony as a man of God. And surrounded as he was by all the outward ritualistic splendor and symbolism of Egypt's worship, Married as he was, Mark, you, to Potiphera, the daughter, to Athenas, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of all. Not once, not once, did Joseph compromise his conviction and lower his standards and deny his faith. And what the faith that sustained him all these years that comes out on his deathbed, God will call to you and will bring you out of this land and he will bring you into the land that he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. That was the answer. Joseph believed in divine visitation. He believed that God from time to time steps into the arena of human affairs and acts on man's behalf. 
Christ marked you with the labored breath of a dying man. God will show this is you. I often have asked myself, where did Joseph get a face like that? <coughs> you know, when he was a boy, Joseph had been very close to his father. And he had been close to his father, Jacob, in those better days of Jacob's life. And I like to think, don't you, that Joseph was just an ordinary little boy running around that patriarchal camp. Just an ordinary, curious boy, the same as anybody else. And here he is, he's running around his father, Jacob's tent, and he says, Hey, 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 Dad, Dad, he says, I've got a question to ask you, Dad. Why do we live in tents when we are so rich? Why don't we live in the big city? In a great big fancy house. I can hear old Jacob as he takes the little boy to himself as his son. I want you to learn one of the basic facts of life. We are a pilgrim people. And this world is not our home. We are just a passing through. Our real treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We are a pilgrim people, Joseph, my boy, and we are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. We are heaven born, we are heaven sent, and we are heaven bound. That's why we live in tents, because we are a pilgrim people. We are Hebrews, we are migrants on this earth, and we are seeking to maintain in our day and our generation, in our society, in our cultural context, we are trying to declare that we are a pilgrim people whose hopes and affections are set on things above, not on things on the earth. And while it is true that we are rich, Joseph, my boy, never set your heart on this world's riches, you set your affections on things above. I can hear him another day as he says, say, Dad, why, why don't we ever go to visit Uncle Esau? <laughs> you know, kids can ask a very embarrassing question, can't you? Uh, I know a man up in Illinois whose grandson, uh, this actually happened, he looked into his face with his grandfather, he says, say, Grandpa, were you in the ark? <laughs> And the old gentleman says, no, neither goodness me, no, I wasn't in the ark. He said, how come he didn't drown? <laughs> Pray, Dad, how come we don't go to visit Uncle Esau? Oh, what a story that was. Twenty chapters of Jacob's life had to be explained to Joseph afterwards written into the Word of God. Dad, tell me, why do you limp? How come you're lame, Dad? You get bitten by a lion, Dad? 
Oh, say, Dad, how come we don't worship the same way everybody else does around here? Oh, Dad, tell me about that time God appeared appeared to you. What was he like, Dad? What did he say? Can't you see him just a boy, a normal, inquisitive boy, throwing her up around a man who had these experiences with God? God beginning to work in the soul of that little lad, and he begins to ask intelligent questions. It opens the opportunity for his father to explain to him the way of God more perfectly. Oh, how parents long for their children to do that. Happy is the man. Happy is the mother whose children ask questions like that. Say, Dad, tell me about Grandpa Isaac. I like all about him. Then out comes Genesis chapter 22. And Genesis chapter 24, not yet written, of course, into the word of God, but stored up in Jacob's memory as part of the great history of the Hebrew people. And I suppose in the course of all this learning experience of that little boy, there was one day when Jacob told Joseph about Abraham and about that incident now recorded in Genesis chapter 15 where God said, I see to be a stranger in a land that is not there. Four hundred years afflicted downward. Afterwards, they shall come out with great substance. And that's the birth of Scripture that gripped Joseph all those years of his exile in the land of Egypt. God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land into the land that he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And very young in life, very young in life, Joseph decided that the God of Abraham, his great-grandfather, and the God of Isaac, his grandfather, and the God of Jacob, his father, would become the God of Joseph. Oh, I say, what a blessing it is for a young man, for a young woman, early in life, before this world has got its damnable grip upon their folks. What a blessing it is for them to say, I am going to put my faith and trust in the God of my father. And I don't care what my companions in school think of me. There's not very many young people today have the moral courage to stand against the sweep and turn of this pleasant, wicked world in which we live. And I tell you, if you'll do it, God will make us spiritual giant out of you before you're through. And you know, God had never visited Joseph the way he had visited Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Joseph had to take it the same way that you and I have to take it. He had to take it by faith. The word of God transmitted to him by his father Jacob. And he didn't even have it in writing as we do. But what he had of the word of God, and I take it that there had been committed to Joseph by his heart. The first 
three quarters of the book of Genesis. What he had, that's all he had. He snatched it up in his heart and he believed it. And he lived up to it. God help him. And so there on his deathbed it comes out the faith that sustains him. God will. Oh, there's no question about it. God will. Surely it's the word of God. And I believe it. And I believe it, my brothers, for all these years. God will surely this. The faith that sustains him. And the fact that strengthens him. God will bring you out of this land and he will bring you unto the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was the fact that strengthens him. That's a wonderful sentence. It gives us a portrait of this old man's heart. As I listen to Joseph say to his brothers with his dying breath, God, he says, God, my brother, God will bring you out of this land. He will bring you out of this land. He will bring you out of this land. It sets before me a picture of an old man who for nearly a hundred years, ever since his teenagers, a young man, a middle-aged man, a man advancing in years, and now a man well stricken in years in his old age, a man who all his life had learned that this world is a sickening place in which there is. God, he says, will bring you out of this land. As I do. He hadn't seen Egypt for the last 80 or 90 years of his life. He hadn't seen it from a shack. He hadn't seen it from abject poverty. He had seen it from a position of affluence and influence. Where his very word was law. And he had all things at his fingers just for his command. And I see a man, he's seen the world, and he's seen all that the world has to give. And he's And all those years, he had been in Egypt. But Egypt had never once been in him. We don't know very much about that kind of belief, do we? That's the kind of young man Joseph was. He decided that if he was going to believe God, he'd believe him all the way. And if he was going to live for God, he'd live for God's world and not for this one. And if by chance he journeyed on as a pilgrim to a better land, if by chance along the way God was pleased to promote him to a position of great power, authority, influence, and wealth in the land of Egypt, he wasn't interested in the wealth and the power and the influence of Egypt. Only so much as in that position he could serve God. The things of this world never got their grip upon his heart and upon his life. Never. Very wonder God loved this man. And of the fifty chapters in the book of Genesis, he devotes a quarter of them to telling us about Joseph. 
the thing that has kept him going all those years, God is going to bring you out of this land. He's going to bring you to a better one. I'm not living for Egypt. I'm living for Tate. And while it's true that God has never allowed me to get there, my brother, that's where my heart has been all those years. In the place where God has put his word and his promises. The place where all the promises of God are yea and amen. That's where I've been in heart all these years. And that's why I've remained uncorrupted by the things that have come my way. They've never appealed to me, my brother. I've always been looking for a better land. And this land has never really had any lasting appeal to me at all, ever. You see, like Abraham, this young man, now an old man, was looking for a city which has foundation and whose builder and architect is God. Abraham had not found that city in Mesopotamia, nor had he found it in Canaan. Jacob had not found it in Syria, and Joseph had not found it in Egypt, because that city is not found down here at all. It's found over there on the other side of the river Jordan, and the land beyond the sky. And that's the fact that ought to strengthen us that God will bring us out of this land. And he will bring us into the land that he swears to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And that's the fact that we can only get a grip upon our hearts and we can live for that world instead of this world. It would change the whole way that we looked at life. It really would. Until we get the vision of the king in all his youth, and the land that's a very far off, until we get the vision of that country, we're always going to be cropping around in this country. My prayer is that somehow this vision of that lovely land that's our real home, what Oswald J. Smith calls my favorite country, my prayer is that the vision of that country may get to us in some way during this conference. That when we come down from the mountain, here in this great and beautiful place, and back down into the valley, and back to our homes, and back to our jobs, and back to our schools, and back to red shoulders with men and women who know nothing about the things of God at all, that the vision of that land will be what motivates us from this day on. And then we notice the fact that the fear that stirred him, he said, you carry up thy bones from heaven. Now Joseph was a mighty man in the land of Egypt. Some years ago I read a book by Leonard Cottrell, who was a popularizer of Egyptology. It was called Life Under the Pharaohs. And this man interprets Egyptology taught us in the language of the man in the street. Not just some dull, dreary book on archaeology. He just takes the archaeological facts concerning Egypt and he throws them in flesh and blood. And the interesting thing to me was in that book, he pictured the life of one of the grand viziers of Egypt. That was exactly the position that Joseph occupied. And so by reading that book and realizing he was writing about this Somewhere in this period in the life history of Egypt, we can get a very good picture of the kind of life that Joseph had to live. 
the kind of life that was opening up for Joseph every day as he stood there in a position of supreme power under the fair. Great man, Egypt. You know, most of the people in Egypt who were in Joseph's position, they spent a great deal of their time and fortune doing out for themselves costly sepulchres on the banks of the Nile or building for themselves pyramids only slightly less spectacular than those of the Pharaoh. And I suppose that Joseph, being such a mighty man in Egypt, might have had his body laid in state in some costly natural shrine. And you know what would have happened if, if he had done that? His body, no doubt, would have been plundered. And when he went down uh, to the Chicago Field Museum, you might have been able to say to your wife, hey, look, there's Joseph. <laughs> that mummy there. Horrible looking thing, isn't it? It says that's not pioneer on. The Egyptians spent fortunes on their burials. They garnished their tombs with their wealth and they built them for eternity. And they're amongst the wonders of the world, titanic trophies of their burial art. But Joseph is now going to speak about his burial, and he says, don't you bury me in Egypt. I don't want any of that nonsense. I haven't spent a single nickel of the money that God has entrusted to me on building myself some great big fancy food. I want you to bury me in Canaan. That's where I belong. I don't belong in Egypt. I belong in Canaan. You bury me there where Abraham was buried, where Isaac was buried, where Jacob was buried, where Sarah was buried, where Leah was buried, where Rebecca was buried, where my dear mother Rachel was buried. You bury me in Canaan. Don't you bury me in Egypt. Now, at that time, you see, there wasn't any prospect of them going to Canaan, was there? As a matter of fact, they didn't go to Canaan for centuries. That's why it says that he, by faith, Joseph, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandments concerning his bones. God, he says, will bring you up. He's going to bring you through. The second time we come across the bones of Joseph, oh, what a great day it was. It was the last night of the children of Israel in the land of Egypt, in the house of bondage. God has been visiting his people as Joseph said. And now for weeks, if not for months, that kinsman redeemer with the rod in his hand had been fighting Egypt with the plague the fog and the light and the moraine upon the cattle and the lightning and the thundering and the darkness and the saying of the first horn is the last night in Egypt. And with the Russian bustle in that great night of redemption in Egypt, everybody's eating in hate. Everyone has his loins girded and his staff in his hands and his feet sharp. There are flocks and herds to move. The Israelites are laden down with Egyptian gold and silver and precious stones 
and not a hope shall be left behind. All that's to be left in Egypt is the wood and the hay and the stubble. And you see that night, that great night in Egypt, everybody's carrying something. Everybody's laden down as much as they can carry even the little kids trapping along behind mom and dad are carrying something out of Egypt. They've spoiled the Egyptians. They've got 400 years of wages for slavery that they're carrying out of Egypt that night. What do you think Moses is telling? It says Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. As far as Moses was concerned, that was the most precious thing that was in the land of Egypt. The bones of Joseph. He was a man of like precious faces. He entered into the same experience regarding this world and the uselessness of what Egypt had to offer as, as, as Joseph had experienced. That same great chapter of Hebrews tells us about Moses, that by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. And he wasn't interested in all the plunder of Egypt. He wanted the bones of Joseph with him. Because he'd entered into life such as faith. And he had learned to discount what this world had to offer as worthless thoughts compared with the gaining and the winning of Christ. He and Joseph were men of a kindred spirit. And he took the bones of Joseph with him. I can see some... Son of Judah, can't you say to Moses, Hey, sure of it. Moses, what are you going to hope for? I've got the bones of Joseph. <laughs> You've got what? got the bones of Joseph. It would be interesting if time wasn't gone to just inquire into how Moses came to find the bones of Joseph, wouldn't it? But I'm going to finish very quickly by showing you what happened and what the capital value of those bones were to Moses in a crisis experience in his life. In the very next chapter, after we read that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, in the very next chapter, we learn that Israel forgot two things. They forgot the misery of their slavery and they forgot the miracle of their salvation. And they said, because there were no graves in Egypt. What a sarcastic statement. Egypt was nothing but one great big graveyard. It still is to this day. Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They had forgotten the misery of their slavery. They had forgotten the miracle of their salvation. And what did Moses say? Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of God. Where do you think Moses got that tremendous faith? You see, he had with him a memorial box. We were thinking about that in our Bible study this afternoon. Moses had the memorial body of Joseph with him. And that memorial body did two things for Moses. 
It pointed back to Joseph's last will and testament. When Joseph said, Judas, in remembrance of me, and it pointed on. And that box of bones, that memorial body said, God will bring you out of this land and he will bring you in to the land that he swears to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so here was Moses when everyone else was standing there shaking with fear as they thought of the Egyptian army coming past, face, hot face behind them. There was Moses standing firm and solid for God. Why, he had that memorial body with him and it was saying to him, God will bring you through. God will bring you through. He's not only brought you out, he's going to bring you in. And all the wilderness way, every experience that tested them and tried them again and again and again and again on their pilgrimage to Canaan, that memorial body carried the same message. It seemed to sit that box of bones, that memorial body said, you do this, service, in connection with my body. Only till you get into the promised land. And then this service will be over. I don't have to instruct you, do I, in the significance of that. As Lord's Day by Lord's Day, we gather round those emblems that speak to us of a memorial box. That points us back to our Lord's last will and testament when he said this too, in remembrance of me. And remember that we do break this bread and drink this cup only. Here he comes. That memorial body says to us in our pilgrimage exactly what the memorial body of Joseph said to Moses. God will bring you out, he'll bring you through, and he'll bring you in. He'll bring you in. I can't go any further. Except to say as they buried, as they finally buried that box of bones in the land of Canaan. I hear God's people had come into Canaan, but they hadn't come into rest, had they? Hebrews tells us that. The burying site purchased for a hundred pieces of silver, typifying the full price of our redemption, and there they put the bones of Joseph away to rest at last, put them away upon redemption ground. And I sometimes think if we'd been there that day, as we heard the solemn service being held, the last rites for Joseph as they buried his body there in that land of Canaan. If you put your ear upon the coffin, you'd have heard those bones chopping away to themselves, and the elbow bones would be saying to the knee bone, and the arm bone would be saying to the foot bone, and the fifth rib bone would be saying to the second rib bone. I say, I say that elbow bone. God will surely visit you. God will surely visit you. I'm not going to stay down here. God will surely visit you. And carry up these bones to heaven. To that glory land. 
Oh, may God give us a fresh appreciation tonight of what it means to be a Christian, to make a definite, total committal of ourselves to the Lord Jesus, no matter what our age, and to evaluate this world for what it is, worthless thought. And to remember the message of that memorial body. And to step out boldly for that other land. Come what next. Shall we? Shall we?